This morning we really come to the mountaintop, a, a pinnacle, a, a high place of divine revelation. Romans 8 is one of those chapters in the Bible that has been loved and treasured by untold millions of people since the day that it was first written. It begins and it ends with, with powerful and rock-solid words of comfort founded squarely on gospel truth. The words of Romans 8 have not only cleared the thinking of many Christians, they have sustained untold believers through great spiritual struggles, dark nights of the soul, personal struggles, days, seasons, even years of trials and uh, tribulations, and most certainly in times of great persecution as well. The concluding words of Romans 8 have been remembered and spoken and rehearsed by the voices of many men and women facing certain violent death at the hands of Christ's enemies. It's one of the great chapters in all the Bible and deserves, as all Scripture does really, your full attention. The, this chapter more so in some ways than some other places maybe in Scripture because it has proven to be of particular benefit to so many, many brothers and sisters who have walked the pilgrim path before us. Uh, but Romans chapter 8 doesn't just show up. It doesn't appear right out of the blue. There's a context to it. Uh, a very important context. It's, it actually continues the line of thought we've been studying in chapters 6 and 7. That's why it has the word therefore right near the very beginning there in its opening thought. Therefore is there for a reason. It connects what's been said before. So the subject of chapters 6 through 8 as we've been talking about is sanctification. The holy life. The fruit of our salvation as it appears in our living. Our choices. Our affections even. The things we care about. To be sanctified is to be, we've said, set apart. Not merely in an unworldly way, not merely apart from the sinful ways of the world, but actually set apart for a purpose. For God's purpose, living, as Paul says in Romans 6.11, as those alive to God in Christ Jesus. And as he says in chapter 7, verse 4, that we might bear fruit for God. That's the purpose. Jesus said his disciples are to be the light of the world. And you should let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Some people do good works so people will see their glory and glorify them on the earth. But we are to do good works in such a way that it glorifies our Father in heaven. That is sanctification. Being set apart for divine purposes. The way of sanctification is outlined by Paul uniquely in a uniquely Christian way based not on law and not on ritual but in our spiritual union with Christ and the new birth that we have in Christ by the Spirit of God. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Paul has spent a lot of time discussing the law and its place in the Christian life and he said the law of God is good. Chapter 7, verse 12, he says, The law is holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with God's law. But the problem with the law is that it has no power to help sinners. Because what does a sinner do when he's confronted with the law? Well, all it does is condemn him. It doesn't help him. It only shows how sinful we really are. So the law as a means of life exists only for those who keep it. But for creatures like us, steeped in rebellion and forsaking God in a thousand ways, the law is a mirror 
that shows us how ugly our souls really are. That's a good thing, because only when we see our sin and understand what it means, that it condemns us, will we flee to the Savior, Jesus Christ. But beyond that, the law doesn't do a whole lot for us. The law even ex excites our sinful nature, Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 7, and again in verse 13 of chapter 7. Because of our wicked bents, when we come up against the law, it actually provokes that wickedness within us to be even more wicked. Because if you don't have rules to break, why bother? But if you've got another rule you can break, it actually excites that wicked propensity within people. And that just totally undoes our self-sufficiency, religiously speaking. Sanctification for a Christian from the Bible flows out of the new birth, the born-again spirit, the renewed inner man, as Paul calls him, the true self. And that inner man, by God's grace and the Spirit's work, creates within us a desire for God and a longing to obey God and to please Him. It is the law written on our hearts that was promised in the book of Jeremiah hundreds of years before Jesus ever came when He prophesied of a new covenant. And in the new covenant, God would not write on stones anymore the law, but would write on the hearts of people what His will is, and they would do it. That sets up a kind of an internal war within us then. We have this new disposition. We have a new heart, a renewed inner man, but an old sinful body which likes to do things the old way. And so there's this struggle, this turmoil. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 describes that inner struggle between the inner man and the flesh. The inner man affirming the goodness of God's law desiring to obey it, but sin still lodged in the unredeemed flesh trying to drag us in the other direction. It can be a very frustrating battle because it doesn't ever seem to end. Now, some people want to give up fighting. They just want to say, all right, I can't win against sin, I'm just going to stop. Others start chasing after theologies or chasing after experiences that are supposed to bring some sort of victory in the battle against sin. Some Christians start turning back to the law. Well, you know, I'm not making it. I'm going to ratchet myself down to this law thing. And then like the rabbis of old, they start to add to it dozens of man-made rules to kind of hedge us in to protect us from ourselves. And when you're frustrated with all the sin that keeps cropping up in your life, it's very easy to want to go that way. They get so caught up then in rule-making that they start judging other people by their own man-made rules. And that turns into what we call legalism. That's something Paul will address, by the way, in Romans chapter 14. It's a tempting way to go, but it's not the New Testament way. Other types of people start looking for what you might call power experiences. Enthusiastic dynamic, emotionally stimulating religious experiences to give one a boost to live another day or maybe several days for God until sin drags it down and you need another boost. And sometimes churches become a place where you just get boosted every week. Fifty years ago, the bigger error was the rule-making crowd. But today it's really the experienced folks that sort of dominate things which is very fitting for the kind of world we live in, the post-Woodstock generation. A lot of energy is put into creating a lot of energy. 
And you know, the ancient pagans learned long ago that that works. Working oneself up into a state of mind where one feels in touch with divine powers. In fact, the word enthusiasm is a Greek word that means the God within. You feel outside of yourself, or rather you feel that some power has a hold on you. It could be a very thrilling experience. But it's very easy to confuse that because any religious group can work up those exact same emotional feelings. It's very easy to confuse that with some that um, this fleshly man-created experience with spiritual power. And you do that by just labeling that experience the Holy Spirit. I heard a commercial on the radio saying, you need to come to our... This is a great day to say that after all of our silly mishaps this morning. Said, you need to come to our church because our worship team is so good, you will feel the Holy Spirit. As though the presence of the Holy Spirit is dependent on the quality of the music. See, that's totally the flesh. Just because you get a buzz from good music, that doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that. That's not to say he's not present, but he's not dependent. And his reality in your life is not dependent on whether notes are hit wrong or not. That's a totally fleshly perspective. Totally. But many people are confused that that is indeed the work of the Spirit because you get the same buzz you get at a Michael Jackson concert. Maybe a different buzz than that. I don't know. <laughs> but that erroneous labeling of enthusiasm as a work of God is backed up by a really clever theological trick where people say, when you, say, when you question that, well, you know, maybe all this emotion isn't just God, maybe it's just us. They say, would God give you an experience that isn't from him? That's a, that's a good trick. That's a, that's a really good trick because now you, if you question it, you're questioning God, see? Would God give you an experience that wasn't from him? Well, no, he wouldn't. Possibly, though, you might have an experience that has nothing to do with God and just because he doesn't stop you from being silly doesn't mean it's from him. True sanctification isn't about legalism and it isn't about enthusiasm. The Bible teaches us how to be sanctified. We saw Paul's plan for sanctification in Romans chapter 6. You could go to Ephesians chapter 6 and learn about putting on the armor of God. That's true sanctification. Cultivating a beatitude attitude by studying the Sermon on the Mount. That's sanctification. Sanctification comes when we use the normal means of grace that God has provided, that Christians have used for all the thousands of years we've been in existence. We meditate on God's word. We humbly attend to the preached or taught word. We fellowship with godly people. We do the works that God has called us to do. These are the things recommended by the New Testament. And rulemaking or getting spiritual zaps are not on the list in the Bible. Now, if you want to get zapped, that's your business. But that's not sanctification. By God's grace and the use of proper means, there is a significant victory over sin which we can experience in this life. But the battle will be there until we are glorified in God's presence. So don't get frustrated because frustration leads you off in these odd directions. I'm just not having any success. I need an experience. Or I'm not having any success. I need a rule. You see how that works? It's so tempting. And a lot of times pastors even fall into those things because they're so frustrated, not only with their own spiritual life, but the life of their people. Well, we're just in this battle. Hey, read Romans 7. That's exactly what it is. In my inner man, I concur with the law of God that it's wonderful, but my flesh drags me over here. So yeah, I can stimulate my flesh and make it happy for an hour or two, or I could go over here and ratchet myself to a bunch of rules. 
But that's not sanctification. We mentioned last week how wonderful it is that after describing this frustrating interior battle in Romans chapter 7, Paul ends on a note of thanksgiving. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Then he goes, thanks. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on my other with my flesh the law of sin. There's this battle. But what he's saying is, thank God there will be an end to it someday. Even the battle. Because the salvation that Christ purchased will result in our glorification. Now the discussion is not over. There's a whole dimension to sanctification that has only been touched upon by Paul so far. And that is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells every true Christian. And as we look at the true work of the Spirit in us, we will see that it is quite different from enthusiasm, which is often labeled the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is um, our text for today. It's a very important paragraph, not only for understanding sanctification, but in understanding what I think Jonathan Edwards would call the distinguishing mark of a true Christian. How can you tell a true Christian from a false Christian? Well, you can't always, but there are certain things. Before getting into all of that, Paul begins the chapter with another just ringing affirmation of our standing in Christ. Grace, if you will, without even using the word grace here. He starts, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would strongly recommend that you memorize those simple words. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That on Judgment Day, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will not be condemned. Period. In any way. No condemnation. That just won't be there. That will not be part of the discussion you might have with God on that day. Now, if you're a Christian having battled sin as it describes in chapter 7, sometimes failing, sometimes trying again, living your life for God, but often tripped up by your own flesh, how much condemnation will you receive on the Day of Judgment? Thank you. That's right, Sean. <laughs> no condemnation. Why not? Because you're in Christ Jesus. That takes us back to chapters 3 through 5, which is all about justification. That God, by His grace, puts the righteousness of Christ in your spiritual bank account. And when your life is weighed on the scales of divine justice, to mix metaphors, He will see the righteousness of Christ, not your failure. Not your lack of righteousness. But when he looks in your account, all this righteousness is there. Plenty. More than enough for your salvation. Because it's the righteousness of Christ. That's how sinners are saved. The word for, which begins verse 2, tells us how this works. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ has freed us from the law which condemns us, the law of the Spirit of life. That's a really interesting expression. It's a powerful and effective operation by the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of every child of God. The rule of sin brings about death, but the work of the Spirit of God is all about life. The law of the spirit of life works in Christ Jesus. And it is by virtue of his righteous 
life, his death on our behalf as a substitute, our union with him. It is Christ who makes life for us a reality. But only Christ that does that. The law could not solve our sin problem. You can see it right there. The law is weak. Why is it weak? Because it can't help sinners. It can only condemn them. So it's weak through our flesh. Because of our wickedness, the law doesn't help us. But God did solve the sin problem by sending his son. And Christ became a true man, not a sinful man, but a man of flesh like we are, that sinners are. And he condemned sin. He overthrew it. Pronounced it of no power over those who are his. So sin was condemned while those who belong to Jesus receive no condemnation. Verse 4 contains a purpose clause in order that, here's the reason, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now we're getting into deep stuff. There's a really big question that comes when you read verse 4. Does he mean that Christ fulfilled the requirement of the law on our behalf only as a substitute? Or can he possibly mean that what the law requires is actually being worked out in our life, that we're actually living in a way by the Spirit's power and enabling a way that pleases God? That's a really good question. Amazingly, I think the context demands the latter view. Not that we perfectly fulfill the righteousness of the law's requirement. That's not the words he uses. But that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. It's God's work in us. And it's that newness of life Paul talked about in chapter 6, verse 4. And that reminds me of the words of Paul in Philippians 1, 6. Everybody know that? That's another one you should memorize. He who began, he who began a good work in you, what? Will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's that process of sanctification. It will get completed. He is doing it. A Christian is a person over whom a wondrous change has come. Halos don't appear over our heads. And we don't fly. And our clothes still need to be washed along with the rest of us. But we do have new life in us. Spiritual life. It's as though we woke out of sleep. Or to be more biblical, it's more like we awoke from death. And we're a people of ex enormously expanded capacity. Opportunities are there now that we didn't have before to serve God. We have capacities to love God. We didn't have that before. God is suddenly real to us. He's a father to us. We have been forgiven for every wretched thought and deed that we've done. And oh, how we regret those things that we once relished. How distasteful they suddenly seem to us. We're different. Goodness, which once seemed drab and sort of boring, is, is, a, is a world of heroic opposition to the darkness now, and goodness looks so good. Once we ran from the light of truth, and now we bask in the light of truth, and we seek truth, and we love truth. God has written His law on our hearts, and it's precious to us. And though we sometimes stumble... We still love every command in, in, the, in the Bible. And we joyfully agree, as Paul says in chapter 7, that it's righteous and it's good and it's holy. Paul is describing the walk of a newborn person. 
and he uses a phrasing that you should hold very clear in your thinking. He says, who walk, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Walk is a wonderful biblical term for the daily progress of life. Walking, you know, one step at a time, right? Step-by-step -step conduct. Now these terms, according to the flesh, katasarka in Greek, very simple. According to the flesh and katanuma, according to the spirit are very helpful. It's real simple, but it describes in simple words the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A true Christian and a pretending Christian. A born-again person and what we would call an unregenerate or unborn-again person. A person without Christ, as the theologian Leon Morris puts it, lives with, quote, their horizons bounded by the requirements of the flesh. In other words, all they can see or comprehend or ever aspire to is limited entirely by their own fleshly self. That is, this non-Christian person simply has no capacity to see things from God's point of view. It's not there. It's not in them to do that. They have no interest in seeing things from God's point of view. You're just stuck with yourself. And there's no capacity for an eternal perspective. It's not that they're not religious. You can be very religious and unregenerate. But the religion serves at the interests of the flesh. It meets some social need or some superstitious sort of need or even feeds a certain kind of pride, a desire to feel spiritually superior to other people. But there's no humility before God. There's no delight in the promises of God. There's no willingness to trade today for God's purpose. There's no love for God. But the one who walks according to the Spirit is a totally different sort of being. That person does love God. That person loves the Word of God. That person desires in the inner man to live in a way that pleases God and wants to serve God's will in the world, not their own. They're two completely different lives. But you know, honestly, they're not always easily distinguishable. Because a person can walk according to the flesh, but know and use all the jargon and behaviors of a person that walks according to the Spirit. And sometimes a person that walks according to the Spirit gets so caught up in just sort of the mundane realities of life that they don't look that much like a person that walks according to the Spirit anymore either. And they sort of act like somebody that lives according to the flesh. But you know, for the pretender, the person that walks the walk and talks the talk in a certain sort of way but isn't real, eventually it comes out. Eventually, life throws us a situation where a clear-cut choice has to be made between God's way or the way of the flesh, the earth-bound way. And then pretending doesn't work anymore. So that has to go so you can follow the way of the flesh. God is easily discarded for an earthly prize. And that's what verse 5 is talking about. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. It's that mind, that inner man, that real you and what is loved and desired above all else. That's the difference. The true Christian can't help but weigh in his mind what the Savior thinks, what the Word of God says, what is right. He wants that. But the mindset on the flesh thinks only in terms of getting what the flesh desires. 
So gods and Bibles and virtues are things to be gotten around. The only fear is the fear of men. Maybe a loss of reputation or business failing or going to jail in some cases or just personal harm. It's a mind that is bound by this world and the things of this world and has no capacity to see spiritual things beyond that very limited vision of the flesh. That's why John makes an equally clear dividing line in his epistle. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, incredible words that we just don't ever pay enough attention to. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You can't love the world and love the Father. You can have God or not have Him, but you can't have both ways. God or the world. Paul explains this contrast even further in verse 6 through 8 there, Romans 8. Verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now those in the flesh cannot please God. Sometimes, you know, I get, as a pastor, you, you kind of work in the flesh yourself sometimes. Sometimes I get angry with Christians who aren't living it, you know, who really just are like loving the world and doing worldly stuff. And, but when I reflect on Paul's words here, and if you think about, you know, a person that's not born again doesn't have the capacity. Their mind is limited by the flesh. So how can you get angry about that? And then I start and catch myself and I'm thinking, you know, what hope do they have? And then anger just turns into pity. And the only thing that really seems to help a hopeless situation is prayer and pity for a person that's so bounded by the world. Paul knows that the Roman Christians are the real thing, fortunately, and it certainly appeared so. So as he commends them in verse 9, he reminds us all of a, of a great truth. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Then he says, if, um, some translators say it should say since, that Greek word can have that either connotation, but it's more of an affirmation, really. He says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But then he says, and here again is the great dividing line, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So to be a Christian is to have the Spirit of Christ indwelling. And if a person doesn't have Christ within, the Spirit of Christ, he is not a Christian. That's that simple. He has no connection, no union with Christ. Hence, the sacrifice of Christ has no benefit for that person. But if Christ does dwell in you, if the Spirit has residence within you, if you have the new birth, then your hope is an absolutely sure one. Verse 10, And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit 
who indwells you. Verses 10 and 11 really summarize a lot of what we've been discussing the last few weeks. Right now we exist as beings at war within ourselves, fallen flesh, but a new inner man. And so here he says, the body is dead, but the spirit is alive. But that's not our permanent condition. That's the good news here. We will not forever struggle with our body, our members. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what? He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. The body will be renewed just as the inner man has already been renewed. Body and spirit will work in harmony, godly harmony in the resurrection. I can't wait, personally. And remember, it's the same spirit, he says. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Do you believe that? That's what, that's what the scripture promises. He will transform you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says it a little differently. It's, says, who will transform, talking about Christ, that transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. As surely as God can create an infinite universe, he can take your mortal flesh and make it glorious and immortal and sinless. So stay in the fight. All those things that your heart affirms your love for God, the glory of His Word, virtue and integrity, that renewed inner man, that will all win. It will all come out victorious in the end by the exertion of divine power. Your body will ultimately follow your lead as you follow Him. Imperfectly now, but one day with no struggle. Perfectly. So set your mind on the things of the Spirit because that's where life is and that's where peace is. Praise God for his wonderful salvation that leaves nothing undone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit who dwells within, who begins to subdue the flesh even now calling us to a life of obedience and discipline and labor on behalf of your kingdom. And even when we stumble, Lord, the Spirit is there to raise us up and set us on the right path again, to challenge us and to confront us with our own failures and encourage us with the gospel. And we thank you for that. Life in the Spirit. What a great, precious reality it is. And how much greater than mere enthusiasm and how much greater than mere rules is it to know you and to live an abundant life through the Spirit of Christ. Give us a glimpse of what that means and help us to seek it out. Lead us in the way that we should go. And thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.